Imagine that you've been assaulted and no one, not the police, not your friends, and not even your family, believe you. Would you continue to insist that you were telling the truth? Or would the weight of disbelief cause you to say, nothing happened, I made it up? On second thought, don't answer that yet. I'm going to ask you again after you hear Marie's story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm so glad that you've chosen to be here to investigate another story from the world of true crime and see where it intersects with our faith. And then let's join forces in community and answer what I believe is every Christian's calling, and that's to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. We'll find one practical way to do that after we dive into today's case. This is Season 3, Episode 30, and our book this week is Unbelievable by award-winning authors T. Christian Miller and Ken Armstrong. You might remember that Netflix released a very well-received limited series based on the book. Human rights attorney Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy, which I featured in the very first episode of The Unlovely Truth, had this to say about the book. This is a devastating but necessary read, composed by masters of investigative journalism. I wholeheartedly agree. It is certainly one of the best books that I have read in a long time. Now, I want to warn you that it does contain material about sexual assault and rape, so please use your best judgment about whether to listen or to even recommend this episode. And for everyone who does listen, this case has a lot of crazy twists and turns. So hold on tight. Here we go. Marie was raped on August 11, 2008 in the Seattle suburb of Linwood, Washington. She was 18 at the time and had just recently aged out of the foster care system where she had spent most of her life. Thanks to a support group for teens in similar circumstances, she did have an apartment and she was trying to build the kind of stable life she had never had before. She'd had a rough life, in and out of foster homes, sexually and physically abused as a child, and now sexually assaulted. How could things possibly get any worse, you'd think? Well, they did, and in a shockingly short amount of time. One week after her rape, she was pressured to say that she had made it all up. The news picked up the story of Marie recanting, and then online blogs were writing horrible things about her. Friends abandoned her, And one even went out of her way to make a website all about how Marie had lied about being raped. Have you ever had to go through that kind of betrayal, that kind of loss of community? I'm so sorry if you have. Then the police decided to charge Marie criminally with making a false report. One of Marie's former foster mothers had told police that Marie would often be dramatic to get attention. Now, this woman had a master's degree in mental health counseling. Yet the best she could come up with to explain her feelings was that she didn't think Marie was reacting the way that a rape victim should be acting. She mentioned that she was a big fan of the TV series Law & Order, and she just felt like Marie was reading from one of their scripts. Yes, my jaw dropped, probably just like yours did, and I was shaking my head for I don't know how long. After that happened, police stopped looking for evidence of a rape and started looking for evidence that Marie was lying. Once she'd been charged with making a false report, Marie's rape case was closed. And shockingly, all of the evidence the police had gathered up to that point was destroyed, including Marie's rape kit. 
At her first court hearing on the false reporting charge, she pleaded not guilty, and the next court date was set for six weeks later. This happens all the time in court cases, and it can really wear people down. In the meantime, a Kirkland, Washington woman was attacked, and the details of that crime were eerily similar to Marie's attack. Her former foster mother, remember the one who told police she thought Marie might be lying? She saw a news report about the Kirkland rape, and she realized that she had been so very wrong. So she called the Kirkland police and told them about Marie's attack. But the Kirkland police never followed up by contacting the Linwood police. And I wish I could tell you that that's uncommon, but it's certainly not as uncommon as you would hope it would be. And if they had followed up, maybe they'd been able to prevent all of the other rapes that would come. On January 5th, 2011, in Golden, Colorado, Detective Stacy Galbraith was sent out to investigate a reported rape. We'll call the victim Amber. She'd been awakened to find a masked man in her bedroom pointing a gun at her. And in that moment, she decided to do whatever she had to do to live. And that meant following this man's instructions. And he had a lot of instructions. He'd brought some things with him that he wanted her to wear. Stockings, high heels with pink ribbons, and pink ponytail holders. He told her to get her makeup bags and do her face exactly the way he told her to. He made her pose as he took pictures with his pink digital camera. Then came the attack. When he was through, he told her that the pictures were proof that what they had just done was consensual. And if she went to the police, he'd post them on a porn site for the world to see. He told her he'd been watching her for months. He knew her birthday, her passport number, and her license plate number. She couldn't see his face, but Amber tried really hard to remember as much about him as she possibly could. And that included the large brown egg-shaped birthmark on his calf. When he was done, he made Amber brush her teeth and shower and gave her very specific instructions on how to clean herself. Then he told her that she really needed to put a wooden dowel in the track of her sliding glass doors. That's how he had gotten in. Right before he left, he gathered up her sheets and her underwear and took them with him as he disappeared into the night. So real quick public service announcement here. If you have sliding glass doors and you don't have a dowel that you lay in that track so the door cannot be opened, please go get one as soon as you finish listening to this episode. Detective Galbraith had never heard anything quite like what Amber was telling her. But her approach to investigating was to listen and then see where the evidence led. Officers talked to Amber's neighbors. They asked if anyone saw anything suspicious. Anyone walking around with a backpack, since the rapist had had one that he carried his props in. They asked if anybody had seen unusual vehicles in the neighborhood recently. We're going to come back to that question about the vehicles in just a bit, so remember that. Detective Galbraith's husband was also a police officer. And as they talked about their day that evening, she mentioned this case and its odd details. He worked in a different jurisdiction, and they had had a rape case that sounded a lot like what she was describing. He suggested she call his department first thing in the morning. That rape had happened in August of 2010. An older woman that we'll call Sarah woke up to see a masked man in her bedroom. He threatened her with a gun, made her wear stockings that he'd brought, high heels, had her pose for pictures, and told her he would post them on the internet if she didn't do what he said. Before he left, he criticized her for leaving her window open and ordered her to brush her teeth and shower as he instructed while he gathered up her bedding. And then he was gone. Detective Edna Hendershot caught Sarah's case. As officers questioned Sarah's neighbors, 
Some admitted to having some doubts about the truthfulness of Sarah's story. One thought that Sarah just wasn't behaving the way that a woman who'd been raped should be behaving. Luckily, Hendershot's attitude was that rape reports were all credible unless she found definitive evidence that they weren't. And some nosy neighbor's uninformed opinion wasn't definitive evidence. And there was the fact that they did have physical evidence that supported Sarah's story. Evidence that would later tie a whole list of attacks together. Hendershot got a call from a detective in Aurora. There was a similar case in their jurisdiction as well. We'll call this survivor Doris. Once again, there was a masked man who awakened a woman from her sleep. He had a large backpack. He posed her and took pictures that he threatened to put on the internet. And he took her sheets with him after making her shower. This time, he told his victim that he had a compulsion to rape women. He told her he just couldn't help himself. And so it wasn't his fault. If you love the content that I'm bringing you every week, please go to my website so you can support the work of The Unlovely Truth. There are different things that you can do, whether it's purchasing from the merch store or joining one of the membership zones. I want to just keep bringing more and more content that helps you stay safe, keep your neighbors safer, and help people who have been victimized. We all need to work together to make our communities the best they can be. Detective Hendershot got an email from Detective Galbraith wanting to compare notes on their cases. This doesn't really seem like that big a deal unless you know how protective police officers and their jurisdictions can be about information on their cases. I don't know if they're fearing that leaked information would torpedo their case or if they want all the credit for solving them, but it doesn't matter. Not sharing hurts victims. Thankfully, Hendershot and Galbraith put the victim's best interests first and they pulled in Detective Burgess from the Aurora case. They noted the many similarities between the cases and the few differences that there were. Most concerning to all three detectives was the fact that the rapist was getting more aggressive and striking more frequently as time passed. They didn't have a lot of leads, but there was one that would make all the difference, but only because of the attention to detail of another detective. Matt Cole reviewed hours of surveillance footage from a business across the street from Amber's apartment complex. Out of the 261 vehicles that were caught on camera, he noticed that a white pickup truck came in and out of the frame multiple times. He noted the time of every appearance and the fact that it was a Mazda. Unfortunately, the license plate was unreadable. I bet a lot of you are probably wondering why I haven't mentioned DNA. These cases are certainly recent enough that sophisticated DNA testing could have been done. But remember that the attacker forced his victims to shower, and he also directed them exactly how to shower and clean themselves? Crime techs couldn't get enough DNA for a full sequence to be found. They could only develop what's called a YSTR analysis, and that is the type of DNA that's passed only through the paternal line. So the FBI database that contains full profiles was not going to be of any help. But one tech suggested that at least they could compare DNA from each attack and they could see if they were looking for the same man or at least a group of male relatives. That gets important here very soon. Detectives also turned to the FBI's VICAP program, and that's one that compares unique characteristics of crimes to find patterns 
that might suggest that crimes are related. And research shows that rapists are far more likely to be serial offenders than even killers are. But law enforcement agencies aren't required to turn over information, so the program's ability to help is limited. A Colorado crime analyst named Laura Carroll used those same principles as are used in VICAP to rocket the case forward. Laura was also big on collaboration and met often with colleagues to talk shop. And in one of those meetings, she brought up these three rape cases. Someone else mentioned a burglary case with a man in a black mask breaking into a woman's house while she slept. He'd been scared off, but if he hadn't, would he have gone further? Laura got the report on this case and showed it to Hendershot. This case had strikingly similar glove and shoe prints from the rape cases. She called that department that had handled the break-in. Once again, the demeanor of the victim was used as a reason not to believe her, even though they did have those glove and shoe prints. And that case had gone cold. But luckily, the neighborhood where that happened had Sharon Whalen looking out for them. She was especially concerned about an elderly widow who lived across the street from her. So she kept an eye on her house and noticed a white pickup truck parked in front of the house one evening. She called her neighbor to ask if maybe she had some visitors because she was concerned about this vehicle because she'd never seen it before. And the widow didn't have any visitors that night, and she agreed that they both needed to keep an eye on that truck. They noticed it was still in the same spot at nearly 11 p.m., but now it had a man sitting in it. Sharon's husband went out and wrote down the license plate number from the truck. They called the police, but by the time officers got there, the truck was gone. But a suspicious vehicle report was made. And even though everything went back to normal, eight months later, when Sharon saw a news report, everything would start to fall in line. Yet another crime scene analyst who paid great attention to detail had spent a great deal of time plotting crimes like burglaries and robberies onto maps of the city. She saw the record of the suspicious vehicle report on the white truck. She brought it up at a meeting about the rapes, a meeting Detective Galbraith was at. And when the detective heard the words white truck, she immediately wanted all the details. That truck was a Mazda, and this time they had the license plate number. And once they checked to see who the registered owner was, they had a suspect. His name was Mark Patrick O'Leary. The victim's descriptions of their attacker matched the description of O'Leary on his license. He didn't have a criminal record, but interestingly, he was the listed owner of several internet porn sites. Remember how the attacker had threatened to post the pictures he'd taken online? Now, let's get back to how they were able to hone in on O'Leary as a suspect. I think one of the best pieces of technology recently adopted by police and even some municipalities and neighborhood associations are LPRs, license plate readers. Some police have them on their squad cars to gather data as they patrol. The information on the plate is captured along with the date, time, and location of the photo. It all goes into a big database. And so all that crime scene analyst had to do now was type in O'Leary's plate number. One reader had caught a picture that showed the truck with damaged passenger side mirror, just like the one in the surveillance video from that case in Golden. Another showed the truck in Lakewood the same day Sarah was raped. FBI agents began to tail O'Leary. They were hoping he would spit on the ground or otherwise abandon something that would have his DNA on it. He finally went out to a restaurant, and once he left, agents rushed in to collect the coffee mug he'd used. But then they found a problem. The agents had tailed O'Leary's roommate, his look-alike brother, Michael. 
Now remember, the DNA from the crime scenes had only produced a YSTR profile. So any male relative of Mark's would have that same Y chromosome profile. Detectives got a search warrant to comb through the home that the brothers shared. And as they ordered Mark to leave the house, one of them noticed a dark birthmark in the shape of a large egg, just like one of the victims had described. The rapist was Mark, not his brother Michael. In Mark's room, they found a pink camera, a black mask, gloves with a pattern that matched evidence from two of those attacks, a gun, and a black backpack. They could hardly believe it when they opened that backpack and found high heels with pink ribbons. Officers also found the trophies that O'Leary had taken from some of the scenes. Ten pair of women's underwear. His computer gave up even more evidence. That's where authorities found the pictures that he had taken of his victims. He even had one victim where he had placed their driver's permit on them and took a picture. It was Marie. They had to believe her now. Detective Galbraith called Linwood police to tell them what they had found. They were, of course, shocked and unable to give a good explanation of why Marie's case had gone so horribly wrong. When they told Marie, they gave her a check for $500 to cover her court costs and a brochure about counseling available to rape victims. She said what she wanted was an apology from the two detectives who were involved in her case. Only one would give her that. Mark O'Leary pled guilty to the Colorado rapes and was sentenced to 327 and a half years. Marie filed a civil lawsuit against the city of Linwood, the two detectives on her case, and other involved parties. And that suit was settled out of court. If you're like me, you probably want to know how Marie's case got so messed up. And I wish I could say that there was an easy answer and that it was something that only happened very rarely. But a national government survey shows that about 85% of all rapes are committed by someone the victim knows. So not a lot of officers are experienced in investigating stranger rapes. In small towns, the detective squad investigates everything, so they might not have had specialized training for handling sexual assault cases. And people often put too much emphasis on how the victim behaves afterwards not realizing how dramatically trauma can affect how a person handles what they're going through. Officers can't understand a victim's reluctance to talk about their attack. Detective Hendershot counters that by asking them to tell her about their last sexual experience, right now, then repeat it three, four, or maybe five times to different medical personnel and investigators like actual victims have to do. Victims will often mix up minor details or not remember the actual order of events. And researchers say that that is common. It's a way that we get our minds off the horror that we're experiencing and into a mentally safe place. Our minds shift into defense mode as we simply try to survive. And what about O'Leary's claim that he had a compulsion to rape that he just couldn't control? Let's take a look at what it says in Ezekiel 18, verses 29 and 30. It's actually a pretty short chapter, so I would encourage you to read all of Ezekiel 18. But verses 29 and 30 say this. But the house of Israel says, the Lord's way isn't fair. Is it my ways that are unfair, house of Israel? Instead, isn't it your ways that are unfair? Therefore, house of Israel, I will judge each one of you according to his ways. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your rebellious acts so they will not become a sinful stumbling block to you. 
Now, when you go back and read that whole chapter so that you have some context, you learn that there was a saying making the rounds in Israel that basically implied that when parents sinned, their children could suffer the consequences. Now, this saying was especially popular with anybody who wanted to shift the blame for their own shortcomings onto somebody else. But God used Ezekiel to set the people straight. Each of us are responsible for our own sin. But as is always the case where God is concerned, there's hope. For anyone who would turn from their sin, there was forgiveness. Unfortunately, from what information is given to us in this week's book, Mark O'Leary hasn't done that. Remember what I told you I thought was the most amazing thing that police have recently started using to solve crimes, those LPRs, those license plate readers? The data they collected were crucial to solving multiple rapes and finding the information that eventually led to proving that Marie had not lied about her rape. What I'd like to challenge all of us to do is to check with your local police to see if your community is using LPRs. And if they're not, find out what you can do to help make it happen. If you live in a neighborhood that has a homeowner's association, see if they would be willing to discuss adding them to the entrances to your neighborhood. Knowing who is around you, your kids, and the rest of your community helps keep us all a little bit safer. Do you remember that question that I asked back at the beginning of this episode? The one where I asked if you would continue to say that you'd been raped, even if your family, your friends, and even the police didn't believe you? Now that you've heard Marie's story, is your answer still the same? Today's episode really highlights to me how important it is for community collaboration. We have all got to work together to keep each other as safe as we possibly can. These cases in our book this week would not have been solved if it hadn't been for the fact that detectives from different jurisdictions were willing to work together, that crime analysts were also included in discussions and encouraged to speak up. And what about that neighbor, the one who watched out for everyone, and then her husband who wrote down the license plate number of what turned out to be the vehicle everyone was looking for? Let's all use this example and work together to keep our communities safe. Be sure to check out some of my earlier episodes. I have had so many fantastic guests who gave me amazing information that you're just not going to want to miss. You can also share that episode, subscribe to the podcast, and give me a five-star rating and a nice review to help the work that The Unlovely Truth does grow and reach more people. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.